Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. That, uh, with episode 543 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and it is Thursday so you know exactly what that means. We'll be breaking down everything that happened over the last week in NXT and AEW on this episode. But not only that, Getting Over is going to continue this week-long supersized show extravaganza. We went an additional half hour on our WWE episode, and we're almost doubling up here on the Thursday show by not only bringing you NXT and AEW breakdowns, we're going to be talking TNA Hard to Kill and NJPW Battle in the Valley. That's right. Four big-time products to discuss. All of it will be going down on today's episode. Before we get into all of that, allow me off the top to remind you that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about Defy. So please head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave some five-star ratings on Apple. Take a little extra time Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. It is also where you can send in DMs and tweets, questions and comments for the show that we will read on the air. Again, all of that on Twitter at Getting Overcast. We have a loaded show for you today as I just mentioned, so we're going to jump right into it. Just a reminder, if you're perhaps a first-time listener or you normally listen to the whole show, but you want to skip around a little bit, we will have timestamps in our episode description, one for each, NXT, AEW, TNA, and New Japan. So if you want to jump around and hear one product or the other, go back and forth, really, you can do whatever the hell you want. Those timestamps are available for you, but as always, I hope you listen to the entire show. Let's kick off with NXT, where really even bigger than the show itself on Tuesday was a news item that came out uh, over the last week. That is that Cora Jade has torn her ACL. Uh, It was confirmed Tuesday on NXT. This happened at a house show. I believe on TV they said it happened against Ren Sinclair in a match on the house show, but I'm almost positive in reality it happened against Lyra Valkyria. I don't think it was a contact injury, a non-contact ACL, uh, but she got hurt and she is out. I will mention that Ren Sinclair is um, Maddie Renkowski. So that's one of the brand new signees for NXT. But it's just terrible right now for uh, Cora Jade. She was out for the last four months. She had surgery. She was recovering from that. Um, You know, I think there may have been a little bit of a delay and getting her back on TV, but regardless, she finally came back on TV, cutting better promos, doing better character work than she had in her entire, very young, by the way, career to this point, and all of a sudden, boom, ACL out nine months, so she's going to miss pretty much 12 of 13 months, and it's going to be immensely difficult, I would say, for her to come back from all this, not that she can't, she's young, she's going to recover from it, she'll do her rehab, she'll, she'll be totally fine. But when you're a year out of the business at such a young age, it is real difficult to pick things back up again. So it'll be interesting. You know, let's assume Survivor Series time around then. Hopefully she can come back by then and we'll be able to address, you know, her return and the way things go. 
there's something that was kind of in the back of my head, though, about Cora Jade. And, you know, the Royal Rumble's coming up. And there's just been a little bit of thought about what if AJ Lee actually comes back to WWE and wrestles in that match? I'm not saying she would return to the ring permanently for WWE, but just makes a cameo appearance in that match. It would have been immensely cool if they planned for AJ and Cora Jade to both be in the ring together. And it's just, it feels like it's almost something that was going to happen and now is obviously a crushing impossibility. There's plenty of time for her to come back and there's plenty of time for WWE to change any plans that might have been in place. It's just one of those things that I had this inkling suspicion that it was going to happen and I can't tell you that it was going to, but if it was, now obviously those plans are off. In terms of NXT on Tuesday, it was an extremely strong in-ring episode. Four of the six matches went five minutes or longer, and all four of those were B matches or better. I'm not even going to give individual ratings for NXT this week. They just were all quality, entertaining, worthy television matches. This is really the best way I can put it. Let's start with the Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic. Carmelo Hayes and Trick Williams fought Malik Blade and Idris Anofe. NXT made a really smart uh, production decision. They intertwined Trick and Melo's music with one another. So people, including Booker T on commentary, got angry when Trick's theme, which is one that you can sing along to, got interrupted. Uh, Blade and Anofe came out in Dusty Rhodes polka dots. Williams hit a leap over Uranagi before Blade caught Melo with a Spanish fly-style DDT. Uh, Inofe went on a great run. Blade hit a split-legged frog splash, but Inofe completely missed uh, Tope outside that he was trying. It was supposed to be stopped by Williams and said it was nothing. And then Trick ran inside for the pump knee and the win. I'll repeat, he needs a better finisher. I'm, it's better than his prior finisher, which was the kick. Don't get me wrong, but a pump knee for a guy that size with that much strength, it just doesn't make sense. The match was fire, though. The inconsistency of Blade and Inofe kind of explains why they're on TV so sparingly, but there's no question that they have immense athleticism and potential. I enjoyed how Trick and Mello worked as a pair without any problems. Better to save issues for later in the tournament, ideally in the final. Probably the best NXT show opener that we've had in months. The entertainment level was extremely high. Trick and Mello were celebrating backstage when Ilya Dragunov walked in, apologizing that Medical didn't clear him for New Year's Evil, and then he informed Williams, their title match is on for Vengeance Day. He has been cleared. Trick was thrilled, but Mello was obviously upset because the finals of the Dusty Classic will be on the same show. Williams came back down to earth hearing that, and then later Trick apologized for that reaction, but Mello said he understood that his match was important. Williams said his solution was they're going to win the Dusty Cup, and he's going to double up by winning the NXT Championship in the main event. Hayes was down with that, but he said, we can't sleep on our next opponent because we have big plans for the future and we have to make sure that we stay on top of our game. Mello again seemed to be all in until Trick mentioned that he could be the first to hold both titles simultaneously. And the continued story they're telling us is that Mello is okay if they both succeed, as long as Trick does not succeed beyond him. And it's real intriguing. There's lots of directions they can go from here, including Trick wrestling in both matches, maybe getting injured or exhausted in the first one, and then losing in his opportunity against Ilya and resenting Mello for it. Another option is that they lose in the semifinals. Mello feels like it was purposeful because Trick wanted to be full strength for the Dragunov match. Then he turns on him and costs Williams the title at Vengeance Day. How the Dusty Classic plays out is going to be a real strong indicator of the way this gets booked. But I'm definitely fond of the direction it's heading. The guys continue to do a great job selling their motivations. And 
there are shifting and changing attitudes with one another. Baron Corbin started doing a interview backstage when Braun Breaker interrupted, angry that Corbin began earlier than he said he was going to, and that he started without him. Corbin talked about Breaker being nervous last week before getting a pep talk. Braun countered that he was the one who led both guys, and he had bodies flying throughout the ring when they won their match. He called them the Wolf Dogs as their tag team name. Corbin hated it, but Breaker said he's been thinking about it for weeks. Baron got on him for thinking about them in the shower. He vetoed the name. Then they asked the interviewer which of them were a-holes, and she, of course, said both of them. This was like try-hard comedy to some degree, but they both showed so much personality that it was really tough not to be entertained. The gimmick between them has been great to this point, and I always appreciate a tag team realizing it needs a name. You guys know that'll always pop me. They really should win the entire Dusty Classic and eventually take the titles into a big match at Stand and Deliver. Whether they're going to, I'm not sure, but again, they really should. I just have a weird feeling that the tag team name is gonna be called The A-Holes, which I get it. It'll be very tongue-in-cheek to that degree, but it's not a good tag team name. Let's just make that very clear. LWO against Chase U was the other quarterfinal match. Zelina Vega and Andre Chase joined the team's ringside. Really strong action throughout. Duke Hudson hit a boss man slam on the illegal man and made a missile dropkick for it. Joaquin Wilde did a handstand flip over the turnbuckle on one side of the ring, followed by a Tope Suicida Tornado DDT on the other. The crowd went ballistic for this. He added a springboard moonsault with Cruz del Toro hitting Phoenix Splash for the win. Let's be clear about something. Wilde? is one of the breakout stars of 2024 already. And they better not slow this guy down. He has been on one since the turn of the calendar. I'm glad LWO got the win here. I'm glad a match actually ended with a Phoenix Splash. And that LWO is picking up victories in NXT is great because it sure as hell hasn't been happening on SmackDown. You know what I mean? These guys can make money. And I really hope they get a chance on the main roster sooner than later. Meanwhile, we at least get another match with them in NXT. And even if they don't make the finals, their opponents are going to look great because of it. Lyra Valkyria and Tatum Paxley fought Lola Vice and Electra Lopez in a tag team match. The heels were scheming backstage how they could take Valkyria's title when Paxley popped up from behind a window shade saying she would win the battle royal so that Lyra did not have to even defend the championship. Valkyria made her entrance and suddenly Paxley came in over the barricade dressed exactly like her. Bird lady gear, doing the pose, everything. We later learned that Lyra had tweeted before the show that her gear was stolen earlier in the day. There were fun moments between them throughout. The finish came with Paxley blind tagging, saving Valkyria from eating a spin kick. She fell onto an already knocked out Lopez as Vice got pushed out of the ring for like a happenstance one, two, three is the best way to explain it. Fun finish. Interesting continued dynamic between the two baby faces. Next was the Women's Battle Royal. Fallon Headley backstage said she was focused on earning her first NXT Women's Championship match, and she's now going with yeehaw, bitch, as her catchphrase, which we can do better. Ariana Grace delivered a whole extended speech in a full locker room, but by the time she finished with her self-indulgent rant, I guess, the entire room cleared out. Kalani Jordan cut a promo into the camera about 2024 being her year until we saw that spunky gym girl doing a handstand on the side, pumping herself up for the match. Still don't know her name. Adriana Rizzo was nervous later, but D'Angelo family gave her a pep talk. So the match had 20 women. It was interesting that it included Thea Hale, but not JC Jane. Other notable women missing were Tiffany Stratton and Nikita Lyons. Stevie Turner returned here. No fanfare to it, but she was back in the match. 
Kalani Jordan got bounced off the apron and onto the announce table without touching the floor. She jumped onto the barricade and climbed around the ring, leaping onto the steel steps. Vice turned on and eliminated Lopez. That's basically for Lopez being the one who lost the match earlier that we just mentioned, only for Paxley to then take Vice out with the Latinas, then fighting with each other all the way to the back. I'm glad they split. It's a good decision. Gigi Dolan worked her ass off trying to eliminate Blair Davenport, only to fall out when the top rope got pulled down. So I presume that's going to be a feud. Carmen Petrovic eliminated Davenport, so she pulled her outside for a Kamagoye. Lash Legend used Paxley as a weapon, then booted her out with authority. Grace had a fun moment where she failed to eliminate people, only to take Petrovic, who we mentioned was just completely dead from the Kamagoye, and then dumped her back over the top rope. Thea quickly eliminated her, but got caught midair and eliminated by Izzy Dame after a fun sequence. And then Lash was the last notable name eliminated. That led to the fatal four-way. So Henley, Jordan, Roxanne Perez, and Kiana James were the final four. Kalani and Roxy had a nice sequence. Actually, Kalani was on fire this entire match. Kiana ate a top rope hurricanrana from Roxy, plus a frog splash from Kalani. Fallon then caught Kiana with a shining wizard, but Izzy saved Kiana from the split leg moonsault. Perez finally caught Jordan with Pop Rocks to become the number one contender at the end of a really hot five-minute fatal four-way. It was a sprint. So this entire two-match sequence was an absolute blast. NXT always does a great job booking battle royals, especially for the women. And the unique touch of having a regular match come at the end of it to more fittingly crown a number one contender, I absolutely love that. It's so appreciated versus just doing a battle royal. Someone happens to win it and all of a sudden they're number one contender for a big title. I'm actually surprised Roxy got the win. I figured it was Fallon's time or possibly Kiana, but this to me screams either that Perez is gonna lose against Valkyria and get called up to the main roster coming out of Vengeance Day, or that Cora Jade was supposed to be in this spot and they needed a replacement that made sense. Otherwise, putting Roxy in a match that she's going to lose doesn't really make a lot of sense. I always expected Cora to win the NXT title, but I thought she would do it at Stand and Deliver. Maybe the plan was for her to win it at Vengeance Day and take it into Stand and Deliver. And I guess it's possible that they were going to do Cora Jade and Roxanne Perez for Stand and Deliver. That could have worked. But I'm certainly going to try to find out whether these were the original plans or a change. As much as I like Roxy, and I think she could thrive immediately on the main roster, there really should not be much of a rush with her. She's still super young, She can absolutely improve and smooth out her game. And there's just no need to call her up to the main roster right now. And you know what? Now that I like think about having said all of this, Roxy has been teasing either a heel turn or getting a much sharper edge. So maybe this match actually was always the plan with a loss to Lyra serving as her going over that barrier and either turning heel or just being a big time tweener as opposed to a baby face with an edge. That would make a lot of sense. Obafemi entered as the new North American champion. The crowd did the Wakanda Forever gesture at the downbeat during his theme. The music could use some improvement. It was kind of low energy. He looked like a million bucks though. And it seemed like his nickname might be The Ruler, which, well, rules. Uh, Femi said his success was foretold and he was the juggernaut dressed in gold. The crowd started punctuating all of his promo points with the grunt that's used in his theme And I gotta tell you, that was pretty damn awesome. He talked about crushing anyone who tries to take gold from him because this is his destiny. It might've been scripted and recited, but Oba delivered this promo perfectly. It seemed like he was trying to be a heel. No one was really buying it initially. 
They kind of just want to root for him. So Dragon Lee interrupted saying he understood the decision to cash in last week, but he hoped that Femi continued the tradition of the open challenge with Dragon as his first opponent. Oba declined, saying open challenges are now closed. So Dragon got in his face, demanding a rematch at Vengeance Day. Femi said Lee doesn't get to decide, but he'll consider it. And then he walked out of the ring. It was quite a decision to make Femi a heel when the crowd really wants to do nothing but cheer for him. That said, he was pretty effective in the role and he did elicit boos in the latter stages of the segment. It's just going to be tough to root against a 22, 25-year-old, however old he is, bright, capable dominant prospect like this guy. We already knew he could speak, but I'd say Oba still definitely exceeded expectations in the ring by himself for a long stretch to open this segment. And it definitely helped that the fans were behind him the entire time. Trey Bearhill fought Dijak. Eddie Thorpe was put over by some baby faces backstage. Bearhill walked in thanking him for representing the culture proudly. Dijak popped in giving them shit. So Bearhill got in his face with Dijak promising to put him on the shelf just like he did Thorpe. Normally, I would roll my eyes at NXT pairing up two people just because they have similar cultures. But this is a unique situation, like given the overall lack of Native Americans in WWE, it also makes sense because Thorpe is far more experienced than Bear Hill. So having him as a veteran, someone he looks up to, that is natural. Joe Coffey sat on commentary wearing an old yellow WWE jacket with a taped on logo. Dijak went over mid-match only to eat a headbutt from Gacy, but he came back with a discus boot on Bear Hill for the win. Gacy then attacked Dijak after the bell, and Lexus King attacked Bear Hill from behind, using his finisher at the end to stand tall. The Dijak-Gacy business? Totally unexplained. I presume we'll, more, we'll uh, learn more about it in the weeks to come. King's attack on Bear Hill was probably the best thing he's done in this entire NXT run, just in terms of the intensity, the execution of it, I presume this is going to lead to King and Thorpe feuding. That would make a lot of sense. Trey was not overly impressive going up against Dijak. He didn't stink up the joint either. It was just a bunch of nothing is what I would say. Josh Briggs was watching film on an iPad when JBL randomly came up. So the neophyte asked for advice. JBL said he picked Briggs because he wanted him to discover who he is as an individual, just like JBL did when he left the APA. Picked him for the uh, Iron Survivor Challenge a couple months ago. Great use of a veteran here. JBL was better doing this than the entire run with Corbin. And also, I continue to be happy that Briggs is getting the singles opportunity because, as I've said before, his ceiling is immensely high. Noam Dar was holding his Heritage Cup in the locker room when Von Wagner put his cup in it, freaking him out. Cup meaning like the one that you use in your groin area. Uh, they did a whole back and forth thing about math and the rules of the Heritage Cup. It was okay. Wagner and Mr. Stone then agreed that Wagner should win gold in 2024. Oh no, God! No, God, please, no! No! That's my feelings on gold for Von Wagner. Uh, Ridge Holland basically squashed Joe Coffee. He went off with some big time clotheslines and lariats, finishing with an extremely weak side slam finisher of some type. Looked awful. Gallus attacked after the bell and kept looking at the entrance with cameras repeatedly showing the entrance because no one was coming to help Holland. So Joe hit all the best for the bells to end it, screaming that Holland has no friends left. The storyline makes sense for Holland, but no part of this was interesting nor entertaining. And that's just me being frank. NXT Anonymous found JC Jane and Thea Hale telling five other women that, quote, these are fantastic while flipping through stuff on JC's phone. They said they all love Chase U, and JC dismissed them before asking some girl Jasmine to stay around. She wanted to get drinks with her and exchange numbers. So obviously, they're still trying to make us believe this is some type of OnlyFans deal, I guess. 
But the part at the end is curious. Maybe they're going to do like a jealousy angle where JC gets another friend and Thea is so attached to JC that she gets jealous and angry over it. That could see that being interesting. Yeah, that could work. Uh, there was a vignette for no quarter catch crew getting back to basics training after their recent losses. They said there is now a catch clause in their contracts where they get to decide who steps forward in any given match. I want to see that in action before I give a further opinion on it. But the presentation of these guys in this little quick segment here, pretty solid. I was I was into it. So that is NXT this week. Before we move over to AEW, allow me to remind you that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast has been nominated for Best Wrestling Podcast as part of the 2023 Sports Podcast Awards. We have pinned a ballot link in our Twitter profile at Getting Overcast. All you need to do is click that link, vote for Getting Over. There's a very short survey you need to fill out and your vote will be counted. You can do this once a week. You can also open an incognito window and do it as much as you want. But uh, you can vote for Getting Over for Best Wrestling Podcast in 2023. We would absolutely love to win our first award. Again, link in our Twitter profile pinned to the top at Getting Overcast. With that, let's go ahead and move to AEW. This is going to be a real interesting breakdown of AEW because I have some criticisms here that I want to mention off the top, but also a lot of praise for Dynamite on Wednesday night, which I thought was an immensely entertaining show. Let's start with the criticism. There were 17 matches across six hours of AEW television this week. That's Dynamite, Rampage, Collision, Battle of the Belts. Of those 17 matches, and I did, I actually broke all of this down because I thought it was important. Three of them had legitimate storylines that viewers could invest in. Things that were told over multiple weeks that led to you wanting to see a match. Five of the other 14 matches had bare bones, basic setups. And I'm being generous with a couple of those. One of them was an open challenge. A couple of them were 30 second backstage confrontations where at least something happened to lead into the match versus nothing happening. That's what the case was for the other nine. They were literally just wrestling on TV with absolutely no build whatsoever. So let's change these numbers to percentages. 53% of AEW's TV matches this week had no build at all. 18% had multi-week storylines giving viewers reasons to tune in for resolution. The rest, you literally had to watch a different show to understand why a match was happening. And even if you did, the reasoning was immensely thin or temporary, where there was an issue for one week, they have a match and you'll never hear it again. That for me, sums up AEW's creative problems, at least as succinctly as I can. And it's why I struggle with the product for so many weeks, including the majority of this one. Like I said, there were six hours of television, four hours and you could mix and match across the different shows, just really felt like they didn't matter. If you put the best two hours of AEW into one show, it easily would have been the best show of the week. But it's not the case. It's two hours of quality spread out over six. And that's the problem. Now, like I said, that's the criticism. But Dynamite delivered on Wednesday. The crowd was excellent. And it was one of AEW's best TV shows in months. The other three shows, Rampage, Collision, and Battle of the Belts, totally forgettable. 
I found them to mostly be a waste of four hours. Let's go ahead and break down everything that happened this week. On Rampage, Swerve Strickland ran through Matt Seidel in less than five minutes, hitting a rolling flatliner and missing Swerve Stomp before countering into JML Driver. No storyline relevance, just a match that happened. On Collision, Hangman Page beat JD Drake in a match that went way too long at 11 minutes. Should have been far less competitive, closer to what they did with Swerve. Hangman did get a great crowd response, so that was positive. But in the same vein as Swerve, this had no storyline. It was just a match that happened. On Dynamite, Swerve backstage said he'll pay attention to the main event, and he's the most dangerous man seeking the most coveted prize. He was wearing like double the eye makeup this week. It's a strange look. Swerve put over Hangman big time, but clarified he can't beat him head to head, and he has no reason to try and prove it again. Later backstage, Hangman said next time he wins the AEW title, he'll keep it as long as he can. He also said he doesn't think about Swerve at all because he's not the world champion. More gritty attitude stuff from Hangman, that is hitting, especially with the mustache. But he and Swerve, they did a great job on their promo segments. They hit all the right notes. It's crystal clear. We're gonna get a triple threat at Revolution. And given that show is six weeks out, I do wish it was a little bit less obvious this far in advance. Better to build that closer to the pay-per-view. But again, really strong promos after a couple completely worthless matches. So let's move to the main event of Dynamite, which was Samoa Joe against Hook for the AEW title. Preceding this, Hook beat a jobber on collision. He got the bat signal entrance and stood with his back to Joe at the bell before trying an immediate attack that got snuffed out. Joe put Hook into the top of the announce table with an extremely violent Uranagi. Hook's head slammed off the wood in what sure as hell looked like it was a head injury, but I'll say he seemed to be okay. And that was lucky if so. Hook flipped double birds and then got powerbombed into the ring apron where the chainer then did a spinal injury check on him. The referee delayed the count for like 60 seconds. Then he just started it and Hook broke it at nine. Despite all of this, again, nearly getting concussed and having his spine checked in kayfabe at least. He then kicked out of two power moves inside. Joe then hit a muscle buster for a one count and Hook was immediately able to go on a run with a T-bone suplex. But Joe countered Red Rum into a coquina clutch with Hook passing out for the knockout victory. Hook then woke up screaming, is that all you got? So Joe kicked him in the nuts and hit a second muscle buster. It seemed like he was standing up again. Hangman ran down for the save and Swerve appeared in the crowd. They stared at each other as Dynamite kind of lingered to fill a preset overrun that was actually unnecessary because the timing of the match was perfect. It ended on time and there really wasn't much post-match scheduled for it. Now, I mostly loved this. Outside of being legitimately scared for Hook for a moment, this was exactly what it needed to be. Joe looking dominant against a young and out of his depth challenger. It was a bit much for Hook to basically no-sell everything in the ring and kick out of the muscle buster at one after he was nearly knocked out cold and literally had his spine checked at ringside. That's way beyond the power of will baby face stuff. It's bordering on ridiculous. I'd have ended the match with the muscle buster or at least made it a 2.99 kick out. And then you have Joe hit another finisher and get the win. It makes anyone else who gets beat by the muscle buster now look weak. That aside though, the crowd was hot. This was pretty damn captivating from the opening bell all the way through the finish. Loved the way that Joe strutted around ringside, satisfied with himself in the middle of the match after he did that apron powerbomb. I did forget to mention that before. Separate from this, because I'm heaping praise on the match, I think AEW needs to redesign its announce tables. First, I kind of hate that it's ringside, just like WWE, when it used to have that unique setup on the stage. I preferred that. But even beyond that, 
It seems crazy dangerous comparatively. The upper lid doesn't give it all and it can get dislodged easily. All the sides have pointy angles and it just seems too solid overall. Like it should be an Ikea table. Instead, it looks like something that you paid $1,000 for. To use it as much as they do, it absolutely needs to be designed to be safer. That's really what I'm trying to say. One last thing on hook. It would do this guy immensely well to have an excursion somewhere. Like New Japan would be the best case scenario. And I hate to say this because I know that primarily AEW fans are listening. But a system like the WWE Performance Center would also do him a lot of good. He has a cool look, obvious in-ring talent, but he basically needs to still develop everything else. Maybe he'll eventually get there in AEW. I just think his development would be faster elsewhere, but these are like small points. Like this match was great. It was a lot of fun. It was booked extremely well. And ultimately Joe came out looking like a monster, which was the point of the entire thing. On Rampage, we had a continental championship match. Maybe it was actually a triple crown. I, I can't even really tell. Eddie Kingston against Wheeler Yuta. Hard hitting throughout. Kingston broke an armbar late with the ropes. Yuta came back with an Olympic slam and splash. Kingston eventually hit a backfist, which was no sold, along with a Saito suplex and Northern Lights bomb for the win. There was a knot of respect between them after the bell. It was strong across the board. There was really no storyline coming in other than Yuta being a Blackpool Combat Club guy. On Collision, FTR and Daniel Garcia fought House of Black. This was the main event. The Faces cut a pre-match promo. Dax Harwood got cut off for a while with Garcia getting the hot tag. The Faces hit a triple team pile driver on Brody King and tagging just stopped cold. The Faces then hit Steinerizer with Garcia joining Dax for the superplex splash only for Malachi Black to get his knees up less than one second after taking the superplex. Dax and Buddy Matthews then exchanged a ton of moves and counters for near falls. Dax ended up eating Black Mass and a stomp for the one, two, three. King then attacked Daddy Magic after the bell. The faces then cleared the ring with chairs, taking out King with a three-man shatter machine to end it. I'm just glad House of Black won something coming out of the loss last week. But now we've already had the four-man and the six-man. So I'm not exactly sure where else they go with this. Like, what else is there for them to do? Or is it over? I guess the only way to do it again is if the house adds another member, that would be random. So I'm just not sure exactly where this goes, especially when they did a post-match attack after it was already over, and now it's 1-1. So we'll find out. On Battle of the Belts, Ricky Starks and Big Bill defended the tag team titles against less sex gods in a street fight. Backstage on Collision, AEW inserted fake cheers and crowd audio during the Chris Jericho and Sammy Guevara promo, presumably to cover up any boos or jeers. It was blatantly obvious. It was also kind of hysterical. They thought no one would notice that. They also mentioned that Guevara is the only person to actually win a title on Battle of the Belts, which goes to show how worthless this has been as a special. Credit to AEW for this being a real street fight. It started in the loading dock. Ricky stood still as Sammy drove a golf cart going five miles an hour at him. He allowed himself to be hit. It was absolutely ridiculous and immensely dumb. The rest of the match was much better. They wound up on an actual street where Bill threw a brick through a car window before getting double suplexed onto the roof. Jericho took out someone named Rhett Titus, who was the car owner with Judas effect. Ricky used a plunger on him. Jericho put Stark's head in a copier and made a Xerox. Sammy did a running parkour flip off a wall and then used a fire extinguisher. They eventually went into the arena where there was an entirely random black throne-like structure in the middle of the air next to two tables, right by the timekeepers. And Kanosuke Takeshka ended up hitting Jericho with a kendo stick, so Bill powerbombed him off this random structure through the tables. Sammy then climbed a ridiculously high truss, like by the stage. 
He dove off for a swanton bomb, but powerhouse Hobbs pulled Starks out of dodge. Guevara drove himself right through the stage with Ricky covering for the one, two, three to retain the titles. This was a lot of fun, which is by far the most important detail. Did not regret watching it one second. And the right team won with the heels keeping the titles. And again, I love the fact that a street fight was actually a street fight. That term is thrown around far too often for simple weapons matches. All that said, there were so many individual moments that were straight up silly, like particularly the golf cart and the ringside spot. But AEW did make Sammy's dive look way more impactful and real than the one Jericho did off blood and guts a couple years ago. This one actually looked like it hurt. Guevara looked like he took a bump. Jericho looked pretty good in the match and the right team won. Positive across the board, 3.5 stars and a B. On Dynamite, Jericho was furious at Don Callis' family for their interference. When Seidel comes up saying, Jericho needs to get back in the ring and overcome this loss. It's the only way he's going to feel better. This was an immensely odd segment. Seidel gave Jericho a reason to fight him, but didn't give his own reason for wanting to fight Jericho. He could have said he wanted to fight a legend or he needed to get back in the win column after losing to Swerve. Instead, he said nothing. And this is what we talk about all the time is the chief problem in AEW. They do matches just to do matches and they do it far too frequently. Why not put something meaningful on Rampage so people actually have a reason to tune into the show? Do they think that Jericho in a match he'll probably win is a draw? I really don't think it is. On Collision, Adam Copeland fought Lee Moriarty. This was the second open challenge. Shane Taylor talked some shit and Moriarty promised he'd tap Copeland out. Moriarty did get some licks in, but Copeland eventually overpowered him with multiple forearms to the front and back of the head before hitting a shoulder breaker and winning with a crossface now called Grindhouse. Real solid across the board. I'd actually like to see someone surprising upset Copeland, but it seems like they're just going to be building him back for another match with Christian Cage. Regarding Moriarty, I still believe if he had gone to WWE instead of AEW, he'd already have been like North American champion or perhaps even gone beyond that. It feels like he impresses every single time we see him in AEW, but we only see him like once every four or six months, and he always loses when we do see him on TV. On Dynamite, the TNT Championship was on the line, Christian Cage defending against Dustin Rhodes. Preceding this, Dustin beat Willie Mack on Collision, another example of AEW throwing out a random match to try and justify someone all of a sudden being a title contender. Dustin didn't even decide to go after the title until later in that show when Christian got in his face. Dustin cut an 80s-style promo. Christian mentioned Dusty being dead because, of course, he did. This opened Dynamite, combined age 104. Dustin hit a flying clothesline off the steel steps in a code red. Christian actually jumped off the top rope outside but missed a flying headbutt. Dustin rang his bells and then hit a superplex into crossroads for a really nice 2.9 false finish. Then he took Nick Wayne down with a Canadian destroyer ringside, allowing Christian to push him into the post and hit a spear that Dustin strangely no-sold by just standing up. Christian didn't even touch him. Dustin just stood up. Then he ate kill switch for a false finish. So Christian hit a second one to retain the title. This was far, far better than I expected. And I did expect it to be good because they're talented guys, but they put on a molasses style banger, like really slow, but also really good. The only issue I had was the strange finish. It completely fell apart at the end when he just stood up after a spear, like, hey, okay, I'm fine. Now hit me with your kill switch. 
But credit to Dustin for going all out here. It was super enjoyable, 3.75 stars B+. On Dynamite, the Young Bucks sat down for an interview with Renee, wanting to be called Nicholas and Matthew since they are AEW executive vice presidents. Matt went on a rant about the rumors surrounding them, referring to the CM Punk stuff, and how they did whatever they needed to do, even if it cost them some vague things, to ensure AEW continued existing and thriving. Renee rolled her eyes. As Matt said, toxicity creeped into the locker room because they leaned on, quote, superficial, cancerous superstars. He clarified that Sting is not one of those guys, but he's the last of a dying breed that needs to be extinguished so AEW can succeed in its original vision. The Jacksons here, folks, tried so freaking hard to make themselves interesting. And at least for me, it came off like a big, wet fart. That is one big pile of shit. It certainly did not help that Renee no-sold the comments rather than trying to dig into them like a real interviewer would. She was still the best part of the segment, though, despite that. Here's the two-headed problem. First, there was like an entire year where it would have been really hot to take shots at Punk, you know, when he was still with the company. Maybe even a few weeks following All In when he got fired, it still would have been hot to do it. Instead, here we are nearly five months later, two months after he's already been back in WWE, and they're finally trying to use the aura of Punk and I presume Andrade Alidolo as well because he was supposedly cancerous there too, as part of a storyline. And then that's the first part. The second part is they spent 80% of this segment with veiled remarks at punk and superstars and all of this shit to only say that none of it applies to Sting, who is the person they should be promoting because they challenged him for the last match of his career. Now, the only version of the Bucks I like is the dickhead Bucks. It is by far the best incarnation of them. So don't get it twisted. I'm glad they're back to those characters. They're gonna be great foils for Sting and Darby Allen in this match. I even like the general concept of what they were trying to do here, leaning into the EVP roles, returning AEW to the way they envisioned it when they started the company, because it's not what that company used to be. But let me be clear, all of that 100% works for me the execution and the feeling like they needed to lean on punk here in order to make this work was a total failure in this segment. And it just did not hit for me at all. Too little, way too late. I'm actually shocked they did not retake this segment because it was taped and try to create a better version even if they use the same lines. Because on top of everything else, the production of it, the way they delivered their lines just Everything was super clunky. I saw people screaming praises for this segment. I don't know what you saw. This was not great at all. And again, that's despite the fact that I actually like the gimmick and I like the general concept of what they're doing. I just thought the execution was completely off. There was a video promo package for Sting and Darby later. Darby mentioned they are 26 and 0 as partners, but the end is the most important part of their story. He said it would end with them as tag team champions. Now, that's a bit confusing because, you know, Sting is retiring in six weeks. They aren't number one contenders, though they should be because they're 26-0. And a title change would require a lot of moving parts. Also, it's strange that they've reached this point and never actually gone after the titles before, despite being deserving this entire time. But think about it. Sting and Darby would need to win the titles on TV at some point inside of the next, let's say, three weeks. That means if they get a title match, we already know the result of that match. 
There's no surprise. And then coming out of revolution, they would either have to vacate the titles if they beat the Bucks, or the titles would get hot shot to the Bucks if they lose. The booking of the match, for me, should result in Sting going over because the Bucks don't benefit elevation-wise by beating him like a younger talent would, like a Darby would, for example. But again, I just played out the two scenarios for you. Either one of them seems clunky at best. We'll see the way it's executed. On Battle of the Belts, there was an international title match, Orange Cassidy against Preston Vance. Roderick Strong got in Vance's face on collision, leading Vance to cut what may have been one of the worst promos of 2024 at year's end. He got the title opportunity for no reason like usual. The Orange Punch and Beach Break ended an okay match. Undisputed Era or, or uh, Kingdom confronted Orange after the bell, but did nothing with a three-on-one edge, and apparently best friends don't exist to get Cassidy's back, at least not on Battle of the Belts. On Dynamite, Orange and Tremperetta fought Penta El Zero Miedo and Commander, another match with no build or reason for happening. Rick Knox did an entire two-count with Trent's shoulder up, appropriate. Penta hit a Canadian Destroyer off Commander's back before he hit a rope walk splash. Then he missed a Phoenix splash with Trent hitting a Psycho Nate. Uh, Orange hit Penta with Beach Break and Commander with Orange Punch before Trent hit that seated cradle bomb move that he does for the win. Solid action, bell to bell, some fun sequences as well. Trent showed some newfound aggression, I think is notable. Then Undisputed Kingdom interrupted the hug with Roddy demanding Orange take his glasses off. Strong said either Cassidy's tank is empty or he's scared of him. Orange decided to take the challenge immediately, but of course, Roddy declined wanting the match at Revolution so Orange could spend six weeks knowing he's about to lose it. I actually thought this was awful. Strong carrying an extended promo segment is absolutely not the play. These guys just come off as immense dorks cosplaying as a badass faction. And now that we know the match is coming in six weeks, every single time Orange defends the title between now and then, which is probably gonna be like 10 times, the result's gonna be even more obvious than it would be otherwise. On that note, this Orange reign, this second half or second international title reign, whatever you wanna call it, is far worse than the first one. It's immensely boring. On Collision, there was an ROH six-man title match, Mogul Embassy against Lance Archer and The Righteous. This was based on their random six-person team falling apart on Dynamite. So at least there was a reason, but no one gave a shit. Sloppy in multiple parts, with Vincent taking a pedigree from Bishop Khan for the title retention. Hysterical and expected, by the way, that Archer gets another realignment, yet remains nothing but a loser. There was no reason whatsoever for this to be on TV. Prince Nana then decided to challenge Bullet Club Gold for the titles to prove the greatness of their faction. BCG mocked the champions later, and I realized Jay White really enjoys speaking in cliches. Listen to him cut promos and keep that in your head. I started to wonder here whether AEW was thinking about merging the trio's titles. Could like have Bullet Club Gold win the ROH version, team with acclaimed against Undisputed Kingdom, then have that break up and they feud with each other for a unification down the line. Otherwise, it's random as hell for them to want the ROH titles instead of the AEW titles. This also reminded me why I'm so frustrated with Mogul Embassy. It's a faction, yes, but there's nothing to it that sparks interest. Swerve is the dominant force. None of the other guys really have personalities or storylines. Brian Cage has somewhat of a personality, but it's only like an individualistic one. It's nothing within the group setting. They don't have interactions with each other where Swerve commands them like he should. Like forget comparing them to the Bloodline or Judgment Day. They don't even hold the candle to Blackpool Combat Club. 
in that regard. And they really should because they're kind of interesting. On Dynamite, we got another ROH six-man title match, Mogul Embassy against Bullet Club Gold. There was new entrance music for Bang Bang Gang. Huge downgrade for the music, but the visuals, the spotlight, on point like usual. Brian Cage ate 310 to Yuma. Prince Nana tripped White, letting Khan hit a gut buster. Anthony Bowens ran down and stopped Nana from using the title with White countering Khan into Blade Runner for the win. There it is. Uh, Acclaimed came out to clap for Bullet Club Gold from the stage. Definitely the right booking. Hopefully this is going as I just projected here with these titles getting unified. I'd personally prefer title changes not to happen on a four day or one week storyline, but it feels like this was a late decision. On that note, what a fall for White going from challenging for the AEW title to winning the ROH six man. That's crazy. I do hope if they do a unification that it is Bullet Club Gold that comes out on top. On Dynamite, Adam Cole and Wardlow were backstage with Cole promising Wardlow would be the most dominant wrestler in AEW, running down opponent after opponent until he takes the world title. Nothing else really came from this, but it wraps up all the Undisputed Kingdom stuff here. On Battle of the Belts, uh, the TBS title was on the line. Julia Hart retained over Anna Jay. This was decent, but there was nothing particularly interesting about it. I'd have thought Anna getting a shot at Julia would have been saved for a more significant show rather than just being thrown away here. It was a waste of time. On Collision, Diana Perrazzo beat Red Velvet in about six minutes with the Venus de Milo submission. This was set up with a quick, bland backstage segment on Dynamite last week, if you recall. It would have been a far better use of time to actually build Diana's character as part of the match, like a promo before or after, a video package, anything like that. Instead, it was just the typical stuff. On Dynamite, Perrazzo fought Anna Jay. So let's just combine the winner and the loser of the last two matches and have them fight each other. Tony Storm was on commentary, hysterically thinking that Ian Rincombani was Tony Schiavone. He was out for the week. Match was solid but uneventful, better than each of the prior matches over the week. Aprazo won again with Venus de Milo. Renee interviewed her after the bell. Deanna said she and Tony used to be like sisters, but they both changed. Tony got on Luther's shoulders and did her gimmick. She threatened to punch Deanna in the box. Yeah, box. Uh, between the cameras changing from color to black and white, and the director missing nearly every shot at the end of the segment. This was an absolute mess. I'm glad they actually did a segment after the match and showed a little bit of personality, but give me a break. So far, Deanna is being featured as a great technical wrestler named The Virtuosa, but she's supposed to be this huge signing. Can we get anything else? She's been there for like three weeks now. How about an interview segment or a vignette or something? We know as much about her as WWE fans know about Jade Cargill. And Jade's done nothing but walk on screen a few times a couple months ago. On Rampage, Akaru Shida beat Queen Aminata in a standard fair match with no storyline relevance whatsoever. There was a strange sequence where they kept purposefully sitting on the canvas so the opponent could kick them in their back. Shida won with a Falcon Arrow and a Katana. Aminata has some talent, but she's now in this role where she's just booked in seemingly every women's match when they need someone to lose. It's just so frustrating the way that goes. So just wrapping this up, okay? There were four women's matches on AEW TV this week. They have an entire division to choose from, yet two women had two matches, and only one of the four matches had a quick setup. That's the state of the AEW women's division right now. On Rampage, Soraya backstage showed Ruby Soho footage of Harley Cameron kissing Angelo Parker, who immediately came up with a birthday cake for Soho, only for her to slam it in his face. Ruby and Renee then stormed off with Parker protesting. After they left, the footage continued and it showed that Harley pushed Parker to kiss her and he actually pushed her off 
that she was the aggressor after it was over. This continues to play out well. Obviously, it's going to result in Soho and Soraya splitting and feuding. But what I wonder is what exactly comes after that? On Rampage 2.0 and Jake Hager fought Dark Order, this immediately followed that segment. So Parker wrestled with cake on his face, which was actually kind of funny. Another match with no rhyme or reason, making it three of four on Rampage that were like that. Hager stole his hat back from negative one and Dark Order hit their double team offensive sequence for the win. At least the kid had fun. On Rampage, the Hardys and Mark Briscoe were backstage interested in remaining partners. Jeff Hardy talked about Rampage beating Collision in the ratings. Matt Hardy mentioned Trio's gold being in their future. And Jeff put a Hardy's necklace around Mark's neck. Mark acted as if it was like almost him being forced into the situation, or at least he was surprised that it happened. Somewhat like this, like for all of them, but I'm less enthused about the meta complaints about only being on Rampage and mentioning ratings and all that. I don't really see an end game for that. Who are you speaking to with that type of storyline? There was also a sentimental moment on Dynamite where Mark came out with a mic to honor his brother, Jay, on the anniversary of his death, rest in peace. He talked about how one of his nieces was told she may not be able to walk again coming out of that car accident. But after he said that, all three kids were able to walk out onto the stage. They also ran a video package for Jay leading into a commercial. This was very sweet and it definitely hit me when she walked out and she got cheered by the crowd, very cool moment. On Dynamite, Top Flight fought Private Party. Party interrupted Flight on Rampage. It got contentious with a challenge. And then Action Andretti crushed a water bottle again for no reason. Mark Quinn did four consecutive, but kind of slow, topes. Probably just being careful because he's freshly back. He had a 450 inside for a near fall, followed by gin and juice. Then he rolled over one of the guys and grabbed the top rope for leverage and got the win. Rick Knox was the referee, and that just made me laugh because of the finish. Andretti took exception to the cheating and they all argued and then private party left. The match was okay. Actually somewhat disappointing because we know their capability levels, but again, it's probably because Mark Quinn is just taking it easy to get started again. At least I assume. Private party, they badly need new gear. They look so freaking corny despite coming back with tweener heels, serious characters. It doesn't even fit their VIP gimmick. They should be looking suave and cool in the ring. Mark Quinn is out here wearing a t-shirt and a vest. They're both in bright colors and sequins. There's no reason that these guys do not look better. On Battle of the Belts, the Jeff Jarrett crew was still all over the place like last week. Jeff tried to kick Jay Lethal out of the group when Satnam Singh returned with food, saying it was from his mother when it was clearly prepackaged. Remember, I thought this was fun last week. We're back to utter shit here. No progression whatsoever. Uh, one huge positive for AEW right now coming out of this week, they're booking ahead of revolution a ways out. You have the triple threat for the AEW title with Joe Hangman and Swerve, Storm and Peraza for the women's title, Orange and Strong for the international title, possibly a trios unification match, Sting and Darby against the Bucks, maybe for the tag team titles. And we got six weeks left until revolution. AEW and Tony Khan never book this far out. It feels like they're really trying to make revolution a special show because it is Sting's retirement. They know it's going to be sold out. 15,000 tickets. They know a lot of people are going to be watching. So they, maybe this is the actual reset for AEW that we thought would have come so many times previously. It actually might be happening here. So Revolution looking pretty damn good. Like I said, Dynamite, super entertaining in terms of the rest of the shows, not a great week, but that's generally the case where one show is good and the others are not when it comes to AEW. Folks, we appreciate you listening already to this point. We still have NJPW and TNA still to come. Before we get to that though, please allow me to remind you that here at Getting Over, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, 
you can become an official Getting Overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Sign up. You will get bonus audio, the fastest five minutes in professional wrestling, instant recaps of Raw, NXT, Dynamite, and SmackDown every week, along with exclusive news posts every single Friday. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. So with that, let's go ahead and move to NJPW Battle in the Valley. We're not going over everything on the entire card, just some highlights, same thing with TNA later, but there are notable things that happened on the show that should be mentioned. Let me just start quickly. The production was immensely rough. It felt like I was watching a high school sports production. It was everything, audio, video. The set was fine, but basic. But yeah, the production was just terrible. Mustafa Ali made his debut here via video package where he challenged Hiromu Takahashi. This is gonna be at Windy City Riot in Ali's hometown of Chicago. Kazuchika Okada against Will Ospreay was the main event. This was built around the idea Osprey would no longer be full-time with New Japan starting in February and that he does not have a squeaky clean win over Okada. Osprey had a sick Rainmaker counter into Spanish Fly. He followed with a Styles Clash to a big pop. Okada came back with Will's Stormbreaker and a Rainmaker. Then he flicked off the crowd for cheering against him. Osprey countered a dropkick with a sit-down powerbomb and hit Rainmaker plus Stormbreaker for a false finish. Okada eventually hit multiple Rainmakers for the win. The finish left a lot to be desired because they busted their asses for 25 minutes. It almost felt purposeful. Like, they didn't want to end on a high note because... They're surely going to wrestle many more times in the future. Second best match of the week, 4.25 stars and an A. Okada and Osprey shook hands and hugged after the bell, only for Bullet Club to attack both of them. A bunch of faces, including Eddie Kingston, saved. Then Osprey basically did a goodbye speech because it was his last singles match as a full-timer in New Japan. John Moxley fought Shingo Takagi in a no disqualification match. Shingo looked straight out of ECW with acid washed jeans, a white muscle shirt, Kendo sticks and chains early. Mox put a trash can on Shingo and beat it with a stick. He also snapped one open and used the shards to open a cut in his forehead. It actually took a good while for Mox to get color. Then he went full crimson mask, as you would expect. He had an elbow drop off the top rope through a table outside. Shingo green misted Mox while he was on the top turnbuckle. Then he hit an avalanche Death Valley driver through a table. Mox came back with an RKO stomp and Death Rider for a false finish. He followed with another one into a chair for the one, two, three. Best match of the week, exactly what no disqualification should be. Only some minor gripes. I'm not even going to bother mentioning them. 4.5 stars and an A. Go out of your way to watch this. After the bell, Mox said he only has one name on his mind, Tetsuya Naito. Hell yeah. They may save it for Dominion in June, or I thought they were going to, I should say, but they're actually going to run it at Windy City Riot in Chicago the week after WrestleMania in April. The Chosen Bros beat TMDK with Matt Riddle and Jeff Cobb teaming. This is actually a duo that New Japan wanted to put together before Riddle signed with WWE, the last time he was a free agent. Riddle won the match on his own with a final flash knee and bro Derek. He and Cobb looked good together. High ceiling team and a great eventual feud when they break up. Eddie Kingston retained the fake triple crown via double countout against Gabe Kidd. Typical Kingston strong style type of match. There was actually a fast paced chop spot that was way better than most others like it, but it was super hard hitting. Uh, Kingston took a tombstone pile driver, but delivered a back fist. They fought well after the countout was called and Kingston was actually going to use his title until he got attacked. So clearly they will rematch this. And lastly, NJPW strong women's championship. Julia fought and defeated Trish Adora to retain her title. Adora did lock in a cattle mutilation, but Julia hit an avalanche double underhook suplex and Northern Lights bomb in the finish. Trish was actually kind of impressive. I'm a bit surprised she has not been fully signed somewhere yet. I know she does a little bit of work with ROH, 
Julia seems to have a couple months left with the title until it eventually changes and she comes to America, expectation being WWE, but we don't know whether that's official yet, but she was the big star here as usual. That wraps up New Japan. Overall, very entertaining show, but it was the matches I mentioned that are the ones actually worth watching. Let's move to TNA Hard to Kill. I mentioned on Tuesday's WWE show that Nick Nemeth debuted here. I forgot to mention that Top Dalla, now going by his real name, AJ Francis, and Dana Brooke, now going by the awful name, Ash by Elegance. For real, that's her name, Ash by Elegance. They both debuted as well. Francis was out with DJ Who Kid attacking Joe Hendry after another of his uh, funny ass music videos. Seriously, go like Google Joe Hendry top dollar and try not to laugh. Ash showed up before the women's title match and Nemeth was after the main event. We'll talk about that right now. Actually, first, let me say the entire set of new TNA titles is a huge improvement. The X division is the best of all of them, but the top two titles are also really strong. The overall presentation of the show was fine, but the yellow ropes for me, really rough on the eyes. So the TNA World Championship was Alex Shelley against Moose. D'Angelo Williams, the former NFL running back, he came out before the match and distracted much later. Moose took Shellshock, basically Blade Runner, at ringside. Shelley worked the arm all match. After an extended counter sequence, Moose bounced off the ropes with a spear to win the title. As he was celebrating, Nemeth's music hit, and he got a full entrance package as well. He appeared behind Moose in the ring for a stare down, ultimately hitting a super kick and a zigzag. Do we start calling it a knickknack now? Nemeth immediately jumped into the crowd, ripped off a Motley Crue shirt to reveal a TNA logo on his chest, and there was a loud TNA chant as the show went off the air. Proper end to a reestablishment show. You get the title change, you get the Nemeth reveal. He didn't do that much, but the shot in the crowd, that's gonna be used by TNA forever. And he's a big deal signing as far as I'm concerned. Like I said Tuesday, I'm amped up to see this guy with a lengthy reign as a primary champion atop a company. He's always been the total package, and I'll absolutely pay more attention to TNA if he is in the top spot. The knockouts title was on the line, Trinity, the former Naomi defending against Jordan Grace. Now, Trinity had not lost a match in eight months heading into this, apparently. Commentary put her over for betting on herself and it paying off, and that's absolutely true, at least in terms of her elevation as a legitimate main eventer. Jordan was straight jacked. I haven't seen her in a while, but she looked great. Trinity was still doing the glow gimmick, even with the same catchphrase, feel the glow, the shoes, the whole deal. But her wrestling did improve. She had a new submission move called Starstruck, and now she does Heat Seeker as well. Grace ultimately won with the Juggernaut Driver, which is the same as the JML Driver, to become the new champion. Really solid match. They had an emotional moment after the bell, and Trinity waved goodbye to the fans because it is believed that she's headed back to WWE, likely in the Royal Rumble. By all accounts, an excellent year for Trinity over with Impact and TNA. The X Division title was on the line, Chris Sabin defending against Kushida and El Hijo Del Vikingo. Kushida had a straight up atrocious haircut. Like, it's seriously worth Googling and finding a picture of this guy's haircut. Looks awful. Vikingo was pretty sick throughout. He hit a inverted hurricanrana, spinning inverted go to sleep, and a step over springboard 450. This guy is ridiculous. Kushida did the hoverboard lock slam off the ropes. Sabin did a springboard Canadian destroyer onto the hard ramp and ultimately retained with his cradle shock finisher. Sabin is still kicking ass at 41. This was easily the best match on the entire show. Also, we had Josh Alexander beat Alex Hammerstone in a classic hard-hitting wrestling match, probably the second best thing on the card, just from an in-ring standpoint. And then ABC retained the tag team titles in a fun four-way over Grizzled Young Vets, that's the name they're using now, uh, The Rascals, and Laredo Kid and Mike Bailey. 
Not pleased that there wasn't a Zach Gibson promo. Thought that was disappointing. I did expect a title change here and it would have been noteworthy, but it made sense to do a retention when you have the top two titles of your brand already changing hands. ABC was pretty awesome. This was my first time seeing them together, even though I've seen a lot of Chris Bay by himself previously. I remember, I think it was AEW and WWE tried to sign him the last time he was a free agent. The ceiling is high. He is small, but man, he would make a lot of noise in one of those companies, especially in NXT. He'd be great down there. And that wraps up TNA Hard to Kill. I thought it was a damn good show. Like I said, a solid reestablishment show. They accomplished a lot here. Was it as good as the NJPW show? No. But a lot, like I said, was done. Nemeth debuting was big. Top Dalla and Dana Brooke, both of them had their moments as well. And there's definitely peaked interest in TNA. I tried to find AXS TV. I have two different uh, cable setups. I have a YouTube TV. I also have Fubo. It's not available on either of them. One of them has an AXS TV now, probably an on-demand, doesn't have TNA. There's also an impact channel on both Fubo and I think Pluto TV. They don't air new shows, only repeats. So I don't think we're really gonna be watching and covering TNA here, but I do promise individual matches and certainly the Nick Nemeth storyline, we will update you right here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. I appreciate all of you listening to today's show. Obviously, we covered an absolute ton. On the way out, allow me to hit you with a few reminders. First, that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about Defy. So please leave those five-star ratings and reviews for us on Apple Podcasts. You can also leave a five-star rating on Spotify. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, highlights, analysis, all of that good stuff. And please remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official Getting Overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Sign up to get a ton of bonus stuff that you also financially support the continuation of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Thank you all for listening to this episode. We will be back on Tuesday with our next WWE show, and that will be your WWE Royal Rumble Ultimate Preview. But it is time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now. <laughs>